Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. Presented by SeatGeek, the best place to buy Chicago White Sox tickets. Download the SeatGeek app on your smartphone today and save $20 off your first purchase by using promo code SOXMACHINE. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of June 25th, 2018. On this week's show, we'll be joined by our man down in Charlotte, Jonathan Lee. Jonathan shares his insight about the night's recent promotions of Aloy Jimenez, Sebi Zavala, and Ian Hamilton, how they look and how they are adjusting to the new level. Also, what is causing Michael Kopech's inconsistency on the mound, Carson Fulmer's attempt to get back on track, and players we should pay more attention to with the Knights. We'll be recapping the Oakland A's series as the White Sox split it, but they probably should have won the series. The good Yohan Mikata had a career-high day on Sunday, and Carlos Rodon looked good pitching eight innings. The bad, Dylan Covey's hurt, and what's going on with the four-pitcher innings? We'll discuss those topics, bring you an update on what's going on with the other minor league affiliates, and answer your questions in P.O. Sox. Joining me is the co-host of the podcast. He's the managing editor of SoxMachine.com. It's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. Not a bad weekend for the White Sox. No, it kind of played out like we hoped. You know, not expecting too much from the Sox, but expecting them to be able to score some runs. Um, unfortunately, with the one the Dylan Covey start, they scored five runs in the first and only one after and lost the game, but came back with more, I guess, five-run innings were kind of the theme of the weekend. Yeah, it really was, wasn't it? They did it three times in back-to-back games. I didn't think about that. Yeah. That's fun. Those are fun innings. Yes, especially two outs. Um, yeah, that one inning started with uh, Tim Anderson getting caught stealing. Oh, my and... gosh. Don't even get me started yeah. on that. But, How did they know, the, screw that up? How do you screw that up? I don't know. And I, I went to the Oakland broadcast 
um, while it's happening just because that tends to be a more, or at least you try to see it through eyes that want to see him be out, uh, if that makes sense. Like, you know, it kind of uh, gives you a different filter for interpreting the events. And they were, I guess they saw it as like not indisputable because there's one side angle to where you didn't know when the glove hit Anderson, like if the wrist of his glove um you know somehow hit it before you know say the webbing did you know that might have been able to be counted as a tag but yeah that was weird but the fact that you know he was thrown out to start the inning and then they had two outs and nobody on and they scored five runs that was pretty cool and it was pretty cool to do that also with hawk harrelson calling the game because uh we won't have many opportunities to have hawk uh you know in that kind of state of mind to where um you know he was unhappy about the call but then he was super happy that they turned it around. And I think they said like the baseball gods were saying that Tim was safe. <laughs> and I, and I, <laughs> I like that like call. That. Yeah, that was a, that was a fun call. That was fun Hawk. And uh, we haven't heard much of that guy in recent years. And that was just a, that was a pleasure. Unfortunately, he disappeared early for some reason. <laughs> yeah. I don't know where he went and, but yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, like it, it was weird to see like a, an em, eminently satisfying game from the Sox and Hawk wasn't around to, you know, say that the ball game was over. Yeah. Hopefully he's okay. Cause yeah. I just assume the worst with Steve stone calling the last two innings of the game, but we have other topics to talk about other than Hawks disappearing act. And I'm sure we'll hear more about what happened at the end of that game, but starting with Dylan Covey from our good friend, Scott Merkin beat reporter for the white Sox for MLB.com. He tweeted the following, Talk to Kobe post game said he felt really good today. We'll have today and tomorrow off, but as of now expects to throw on Tuesday, he pointed to an area on his leg that looks somewhere between a hip flexor and a groin injury. If that makes sense, team has said it's a hip flexor. Good news is he feels good. Jim, that is a very encouraging report, but if Dylan Kobe sleeps on his hip wrong and he doesn't feel better in a couple of days, what are the White Sox going to do with his spot in the starting rotation? Well, I think if it's more than, say, one start, um, you might see something more drastic, like going to an off-roster guy, whether it's Don Roach would be the boring one, um, you know, somebody who they could call up. He's got major league experience, so if they wanted to call somebody up for one spot start and, and not think that they were messing with the development or uh, setting false hopes for a prospect, then I think they'd go for him over Jordan Stevens or Michael Kopech. If it's just one start, I can imagine them going to Hector Santiago maybe for an outing because he doesn't have much to do in this bullpen. And then maybe, um, you know, calling up a long relief guy to either act as a tandem starter or a long reliever in case like another short start happens. But it doesn't seem, you know, it kind of reminded me of a, uh, you know, not to bring up curling, but it's, it didn't, <laughs> I think I, I think I have pulled that muscle that he's talking about or tweaked it, uh, uh, curling. We mentioned the word, uh, I think, uh, Covey mentioned the word drag leg. And that's what it kind of reminded me of, just like yeah, in the front of the hip. And it's it seems almost like a nerve thing more than any kind of muscular or um, yeah, anything that really lingers. It just happens to be maybe irritated for one particular moment and it just lasts until you give that muscle a rest. Yeah, it's disappointing though, because in eight starts this year for Kovey, 44 and a third innings pitched, 32, 36 strikeouts to 20 walks. He has an ERA at 3.45. His FIP is almost identical at 3.49, and he is worth 0.7 wins above replacement. Kovey's been pitching well, and it'd just be a yeah. bummer if all of a sudden in a couple of days they report he's not getting any better. He's going to need to spend some time on the 10-day DL. 
that just suck. I mean, it, it fits the theme of the 2018 season, right? But here's Kobe. He's pitching well, and he's giving the White Sox an opportunity to win games in his starts. And now there's a little bump in the road. So hopefully D- Dylan Covey does feel better. Another good topic. Yoan Mikata came up big on Sunday with the bases loaded. As you mentioned, Jim, that first five-run inning on Sunday cleared it with a double to put the White Sox up 3-2. to two. Then later in the game, he had a three-run homer to give him a new career high with six runs batted in in a game. And I think you tweeted this, Jim, that Mikata's double, not only did he need that moment, but us fans also needed that moment. Do you think that this is the type of game that sparks a hot streak for Mikata? Not necessarily, just because Paul Blackburn isn't really an accomplished starter. He had an eight ERA coming into the game, and you know he looked... Uh... He looked world-beating the first time through the order, but the second time through they saw him, and then Moncada's at-bat was third time through. So I think that might be, you know, picking on a lesser pitcher, which, you know, he needs to do. Um, you know, all the White Sox need to do that. So, um, you know, you might say that he's, um, you know, beating up somebody who might not be a major league pitcher, but there are a lot of non-major league pitchers in the major leagues just because of shortages and uh, rebuilds and whatnot. I mean, we've we've seen it on the White Sox side, so... Um, but yeah, aside from him and the fans, I mean, like, you know, I imagine Rick Renteria needed that <laughs> and, uh, you know, Rick Hahn in the front office needed that just because, uh, um, you know, especially since I would say the disabled list and because I think even before then he was fine, um, just really hadn't been stinging the ball, hadn't been capitalizing, you know, the game had been finding him, um, kind of like it had been finding Adam Engel during the worst of his times and, uh, these rallies just kind of die in his bats. In this case, um, he didn't get into uh, he didn't get backed into a corner. He got a first pitch. He was ready for it. It was a decent pitch. I mean, it was a slider on the inside corner, but um, didn't really have a lot of. Uh, yeah, it was kind of thrown like a cutter, but it was only 87 miles per hour, so it wasn't like a power cutter. And he was just able to open up and get around on it and really rope it to the right side. And um, it seemed like he knew what he was looking for. He had like an idea of what part of the zone he wanted in mind, and he was ready for it when it happened. Yeah, so far for Mikati, he's got 15 doubles on the year, 10 home runs with 32 runs batted in. He's on pace for 21 home runs, 31 doubles, and 67 runs batted in. Jim, let's say he does finish with that. I know it's counting stats, and it's hard to project what kind of wins above replacement he's going to end up with without having our good friend Dan Zaborski with us to give us those types of projections. But counting stats-wise, would those be good numbers that you'd like from Mikata in his first full year? Uh, they're all right. Um, a little bit, I would say, on the disappointing side, but um, you know, the injury, I think, hurts that. But I think it's more a matter of him cutting down strikeouts and such. I imagine the hits coming up and say, like, not even necessarily the homers, but doubles, you know, being able to leg out, you know, more extra base hits. I, I think, uh, you know, if he stalled in the 20s in that department that would be a little bit disappointing uh, for a full season so I think you can do better than that the other good topic is Tim Anderson he was five for 12 this weekend with two home runs and four runs batted in he scored five runs Tim Anderson Jim is on pace for 27 home runs and 31 stolen bases now he's got an outside shot at a 30 30 year but Jim Anderson is the team leader in home runs. Hmm. Does that surprise you? It does. Um, one, because you expect Jose Abreu to lead that, and also Matt Davidson having a good season. They seem like more of the home run hitter, but he is—you uh, know—he does have some pop on his bat to the pole side, which I think uh, 
you know, is kind of important. And, and something like Abreu, he's a well-rounded hitter. So, I mean, he'll spray the ball to right field and down the line, and he doesn't really have a home run-oriented swing. And same thing with Davidson, I think, as we've seen Davidson mature and have a little bit more of a, um, yeah, I guess more of a disciplined approach. He does seem more content to go to right center and, and try to leave the yard that way. And we've seen him hit a few doubles off the right center wall. So um, when Anderson lifts it, he tends to lift it to the pole side, which is the easiest way to get homer. So uh, I guess that's one point for pulling the ball in the air, which is the whole, you know, launch angle fly ball revolution um, that he's benefiting from. And as the White Sox go along and, and compile hitters and, you know, build an offense, uh, we, we saw that with Abreu, we saw that with Avi Garcia for years, that you know Garcia couldn't hit homers because all his power went to the right side. Tyler Flowers kind of have a similar thing. Um, hopefully when, when Eloy Jimenez comes up, we start seeing that pull power you know, a little bit more natural to him and, and being able to get you know to 30 homers more easily in a more natural way. Not to say that you know Jimenez can't be a well-rounded hitter, but I think when it comes to the guys who are reliable for 35, 40 homers, that pull power is really the driving factor. Yeah, because Matt Davidson also has 13 home runs in the year, so I'm sorry, I misspoke. Tim Anderson and Matt Davidson are tied for the team lead in home runs. And I mentioned Mikata, he's on pace hit 21. Davidson and Anderson are on pace hit 27 home runs apiece. Jose Abreu's only on pace hit 23 home runs. I think for Anderson and even Mikata a little bit, I'm a little bit surprised that they're on pace to hit that many. I'd be actually a bit shocked if Tim Anderson hits 27 home runs uh, in 2018. Uh, but Davidson and Abreu, I-, I thought, especially the way that this season started, that both guys could hit 30-plus home runs. Would you deem it disappointing if Jose Abreu does not hit the 30-home run mark as he has fallen off that pace? Um, For him, I would say, like, high 20s, I think, is um... – within the reasonable amount of expectation just because he is, you know, if he hits 300 with, with say like 28 homers, you know, that seems well within his natural talent and kind of his, you know, the, the approach that he uses. So I wouldn't call that a disappointment. Low twenties, I think would be uh, a little bit uh, disappointing, but we've seen it before where it seems like he's uh, really lagging behind and it's not quite sure like when the, when the homers will be there and then, you know, he hits like five in a week and he's back on track. So right. I think he has one of those clusters in him that, that'll, you know, gain him some separation. But for the time being, I think he's still, I I think he's in a little bit of a cold spell right now and he's not getting great results for his better hit ball. So um, still, you know, was able to, he tried to leg out his daily double Sunday. That didn't work. But uh, I think the, the, the pull power, the lift isn't quite there yet. And he seems to be more grounding the ball to the left side. And, you know, that should turn around for him. Because next week, the White Sox will be past the 81 game mark and will be officially done with the first half. So, We'll be taking a look as far as where everybody is pacing after the first half and hopefully to see where they could end up at the end of the year and what kind of their final season totals will be. So just a taste of what we'll be talking about more in depth next week on the podcast. The next good topic, Lucas Giolito, Jim. Best start of 2018 on Friday, game two of the doubleheader. He pitched seven innings, allowed seven hits, four earned runs, eight strikeouts to two walks, but Jim Giolito was hitting 95 to 96 miles per hour with his fastball. So with an uptick in velocity, could that have a similar effect in performance for Giolito like it has for Dylan Covey? Certainly, especially if it comes with no, um, you know, no real sacrifice in the command of his pitches, because we saw him before 
um, you know, a couple starts ago, sitting 91, 92, and not hitting his spots, you know, being all over the place. And, uh, you know, adding two or three miles per hour to your fastball just really increases your margin for error, especially if you work up in the zone. That's the difference between a home run and a pop-up. So, uh, yeah, uh, it was really... Yeah, I wouldn't quite call it electric. It wasn't quite the spring training standards that he uh, uh, that that got everybody excited. That one outing against had against the Cubs, where he had the wipeout curveball and the high fastball, it wasn't quite that great. Especially since he started off a little bit uh, shaky. But you know, when you see a start like that, you just want to see two of them in a row, just because it is very. You know, when you see him pitch like that, you understand how he can have success. When he when he throws 91, 92, it doesn't look like he has anything, any one thing. That is really something that can carry him, you know, through a start. You know, it seems like you know it, success for him when he's pitching with lesser stuff is an inning by inning proposition. Where you know when he has that ninety five, then you can you know like like say Reynaldo Lopez does. You know, Lopez isn't really lighting up the world with strikeouts, but when when mm-hmm. he's got his good fastball going, it's just like okay, well, first time through he does a lot of heavy lifting with his fastball. Second time through, he still goes with this fastball. If they start catching up to that, more changeups. Third time through, uh, or maybe sliders. Third time through, then the changeup comes. You know, he's able to shape an approach for a time through the order to give hitters different looks. And I think when a Giolito has the big fastball going, then that just opens up everything and allows him to not have to throw sliders and changeups in this whole bag of tricks just to get strikes. He's able to set up hitters with good counts and then put them away. All right, bad topic. In that Sunday game, Rick Renteria pulled Bruce Rondon, who started the ninth inning by walking the leadoff hitter, and pulled him. And we've seen four-pitcher innings frequently late in games, Jim. And I understand that with Nate Jones on the mend, it does put Renteria in a tough spot because he doesn't seem to have that right-hander that he feels confident in in high-leverage situations outside of Joaquin Soria. And that's why we're seeing Bruce Rondon and even Chris Chris Volstead is being used in high leverage situations. That's definitely playing with fire. But I'm wondering if Renteria is micromanaging too much the bullpen in key innings, if that makes sense. Are these bad habits that Renteria is forming? I don't I don't think they're bad habits, but I think he is right now in a situation where he doesn't want to put I think he knows that when it comes to like say Chris Volstad pitching in tie games in the eighth inning that that's not somebody who should be pitching in high leverage situations and he doesn't want to put the the stress on him doesn't want to you know put him in a position to fail which inevitably uh if he's not going to soria or say um you know one of the lefties against lefties in situations that's kind of what he's doing everybody's pitching above their pay grade so i, I think he's kind of reluctant to put Volstead in the situation where he gives up two hits uh, with a runner on base, you know, in a tie game in the eighth inning and gets the loss or, and it shows up as a, you know, either a loss or, you know, say if he has a lead, a blown save in his, on his stat line, it's like, well, you know, he shouldn't be there. Just injuries are the reason he, he, uh, he's there. And, and so he's just uh, doing the best he can with what little stuff he has. But um, the hope is that, you know, Juan Manai has been pitching better. And I think, you know, Renteria just needs one guy who, yeah, can be a right-hander for three or four batters in such a situation. Bruce Rondon was that guy, and then Rondon hasn't looked that way for now a couple weeks. And that that uh, short hook was really something. And and you know, watching the conversation they're having, Rondon was animated. Um, Renteria had his arm on. I'm trying to, if I'm remembering the visual right. 
uh, Renteria had his arm, his hand on Rondone's arm, and Rondon had his hand on Renteria's arm. They're kind of doing like the, uh, just trying to say like, you know, who's in control? Who's the one delivering the news here? And, you know, ultimately Renteria won because he already signaled, but that was unusual. And Renteria, after the game, said that he just didn't like the way Rondone was looking while pitching. Like, he seemed like he was struggling with the mound and just didn't want, um, you know, bad pitches and walks to pile up, you know, while he tried to figure out his footing. And um, I'm not sure I buy that. Um, <laughs> I think he just might be a little bit tired of Rondone, especially given how poorly he's pitched, especially, you know, 10-2 game, you walk the first batter on four pitches and, you know, it's almost like a benching for a mental mistake, that kind of thing. Uh, if you don't make the guy swing the bat in, within 10-2 game, I can't see that being the, uh, being the case where he just says like, all right, let's go to a different guy and, you know, and maybe Rondone pitches one more game and then he's DFA or something. It's, it's kind of uh, what I pictured when that, when that scenario happened, Renteria tried to put a, a positive spin on it, or at least kind of an empathy, uh, you know, empathetic, you know, I'm not mad at him. You know, I'm, I just saw this reason. I'm not sure I buy it. Well, a good topic is Carlos Rodon, his fourth start of the year, eight innings, only allowed seven hits, two earned runs. One of them was a home run, no walks over eight innings. That's, Rare for this 2018 season uh, and three strikeouts, not a lot of strikeouts, a lot of contact, but again, the A's can only score two runs against Carlos Rodon after four starts now, Jim, which Rodon's four, after four starts, the season totals uh, is 24 and a third innings, 19 strikeouts, seven walks with a 3.70 ERA. Are you satisfied with the progression that Rodon has made returning from his downtime? Definitely. Um, it could be a lot worse, but um, what I like seeing with Rodon, you know, he only struck out three, but the one thing I like about watching him and, and the one thing that the other starters lack is just the ability to, when he's in a corner, to be able to power his way through it and regain the upper hand. We saw that when he had uh, runners in second and third, nobody out, gets a ground out, gets a strikeout on high fastball, just jams. I think it was Jed Lowry just jammed the hell out of him. <laughs> you get that weak pop up. And that's fun to see. That's, uh, you know, something that Giolito doesn't quite have. Lopez doesn't quite have. Just that hard stuff and the hard breaking ball that just gets some ugly swings and, and really uh, can miss bats when he needs to. And when he can dial that up, you know, say like in this game, and, and you know, to kind of go back to what we are saying about, you know, Lopez and, and Giolito and such, when you have the big fastball, you can just kind of pitch with that for a while, see if they make you throw something else. With Rodon, you know, they made him throw something else. He found the slider. He found the high fastball. He was able to, you know, throw sliders inside to righties, get weak contact. Um, you know, that's the fun stuff. And and so if he goes eight innings and only throws 99 pitches and saves the bullpen, <laughs> saves um, Renteria from having to use uh, four relievers in an inning and, and try to find anybody who's competent from the right, right-hand side in front of Joaquin Soria, um, you know, so much the better, so... Yeah, I like what I'm seeing so far, and um, hopefully he can hang around, stay healthy, and just kind of be that, um, yeah, I almost want to say the word role model, just because when you see him um, get in trouble and then just take it up a notch and give hitters something not prepared for, I don't know if any of the other pitchers can duplicate that, but I'd like to see if they notice it. And learn from it, if anything. Yeah, like, yeah, their own way, at least. Yeah, I don't think they have Rodon's power stuff, but maybe in their own way, be able to kind of summon that confidence that they're still not in trouble. You know, Ronaldo Lopez has that type of stuff. Yeah, 
not, not quite the slider the same way. Well, not a lot of people in the world, Jim, have a 70 grade yeah. slider like Carlos Rodon yep. does. <laughs> but yeah, he, he can ramp up the fastball, though. Yes, he can. Find the uh, couple extra miles per hour when he needs it in those situations, assuming it's not like pitch number 100. It just seems like Rodon pitches better when he's in trouble than when he's not. Because I'm noticing, as you mentioned, the velocity uptick. He's establishing, trying to establish an early strike in the count, and he's sitting at 92. And you have guys like Matt Olson who will make you pay for that, right? To hit mm-hmm. solo home runs. I mean, he has given up quite a few home runs in the 24 innings. Uh, in his last full year in 2016, he also gave up quite a few home runs, uh, 22 home runs on the year. But I think he's been pitching great. I was thinking he'd be averaging like five innings per start after his first four starts. He's averaging six. So hopefully this continues to build up for Rodon. In his career, he's been outstanding in the month of August. Uh, So hopefully uh, he has a good July. And when he turns it on in August, like he does every single year in his career, it seems like, uh, that it could be really exciting and fuel that enthusiasm as we look into 2019. So that was this weekend series. How about this upcoming week, Tuesday through Thursday series, as the White Sox are off on Monday, June 25th. The Minnesota Twins come into town. And I keep saying this, it's just like a broken record, but Minnesota's 34 and 40. They're six games below 500. They're eight games back of the Cleveland Indians, and they're still tied with the Detroit Tigers. What is going on, Minnesota? I still feel, Jim, that they're blowing a golden opportunity here. The pitching problems for this series, Tuesday and Wednesday, they are night games, starting at 7.10 p.m. Central Time. On Tuesday, it is Lance Lynn who's been pitching better for the Twins against Ronaldo Lopez. On Wednesday, it is Kyle Gibson against James Shields. And on Thursday, the Twins have yet to announce a starter. Whoever it will be, it will be against Lucas Giolito. Jim, what are you looking for out of this series for the White Sox? Well, you know, two good starts in a row from Giolito with that kind of stuff. Um, you know, for starters, I would say. It's nice that they'll avoid Jose Barrios. He uh, he yeah. struck out twelve uh, Rangers and, and the uh, Twins. Uh, you know, one two nothing to beat the Rangers in the finale of that series. And so, you know, seeing him, he's their all star, right? I, I think he's their all star. Uh, I think so. I know he's had a couple bad starts that kind of make his numbers look more pedestrian. But yeah, eight and five, three fifteen ERA. So could be uh, the strikeouts. I think are there. So when it comes to peripherals and such, that could be a vote uh, for him. But. Yeah, it seems like they're a weird team that just kind of fails in, you know, not one way. I mean, you know, they're getting great seasons from Rosario and Escobar, and but Dozier's disappeared and Morrison hasn't delivered. So, I mean, like, it's kind of a lopsided lineup. They have pitching staff that goes hot and cold, I think. Um, you know, Lynn's been pitching better. He got off to a rough start. The bullpen has been, um, you know, hit or miss with some, uh, you know, blown games here and there, but... If I were a Twins fan, I think I'd be tearing my hair out for the season just because, uh, I mean, we've seen it before at the White Sox and their, um, you know, contending years where some things went really right and even then, you know, can't get to 500. And now that the Indians are pulling away, it seems like probably this, you know, you don't want to call this week must wins or anything like that, but, you know, in, in late June, but it kind of is that way just because the wild card isn't, they don't really have a shot at that. So, um Really, the Central is their only option. If, say, the Indians break open a double-digit game lead, you know, by early July, I don't know how you make that up if you're the if you're the Twins. 
Coming up after the break, we'll be joined by our man down in Charlotte, Jonathan Lee. He'll share his reportings from Charlotte on how Eloy Jimenez is adjusting to AAA life and what Michael Kopech has to work through to get back on track. Next on the Sox Machine Podcast. Before we speak with Jonathan, a quick word from our sponsor, SeatGeek. Buying tickets can be complicated and confusing, but there is a better way to buy with SeatGeek. SeatGeek is the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to every type of live event. Whether you're searching for a last-minute deal, planning a night out with friends, or need to find the perfect gift, SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at the best prices, fully guaranteed. There's nothing quite like being there in person, and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for a great value. I use SeatGeek all the time for Chicago White Sox tickets because it's by far the easiest way I found to shop for tickets. I could be anywhere, and with just a few taps, I can instantly find great seats to White Sox games. And to get you the most bang for your buck, SeatGeek grades every ticket based on value to help you immediately identify the best seats that fit your budget with their deal score. And they have great deals for this upcoming week as the Minnesota Twins will be coming into Chicago for Tuesday's game. SeatGeek has tickets as low as $6. On Wednesday's game, $7. And Thursday's game, $8. And the best part of using SeatGeek for Sox Machine listeners is you get to save in a couple of ways. One, if you've never used SeatGeek before, download the SeatGeek app onto your smartphone or visit SeatGeek.com and use promo code SOXMACHINE to save $20 off your first purchase. Or if you have used SeatGeek before, you can save $10 off on all Major League Baseball purchases by using promo code MACHINE by June 30th. So again, use promo code SOXMACHINE to save $20 off your first purchase or use promo code MACHINE to save $10 off on all Major League Baseball tickets on the SeatGeek app or on SeatGeek.com. Thanks to the recent promotions for the Charlotte Knights, they just got a lot more interesting with Aloy Jimenez, Ian Hamilton, and Sebi Zavala joining the squad. It's only been four games, but the trio has been making an impact in their own ways. To learn more about their transition from Birmingham to Charlotte, plus the latest on Michael Kopech, Karsten Fulmer, and Jordan Stevens, is our man down in Charlotte. It's Jonathan Lee. And hello, Jonathan. Thanks for taking the time to come on the Sox Machine Podcast. Josh, thanks for having me. It's only been four games, Jonathan, so pardon this small sample size. Uh, but Aloy Jimenez, hitting-wise, is adjusting to AAA pitching nicely. He had a big game on Sunday with his first home run and delivering the game-winning hit in the eighth inning. He's 4-for-13 for with three walks and two strikeouts. Uh, like I said, it's only four games, but how is Aloy Jimenez handling the transition from AA to AAA? Yeah, it's really fun to watch him because, you know, when you first got here, you know, basically that was a Thursday. He was called up. He was he was brought to Charlotte within about three or four hours. He was on the field for batting practice. So he had no time to adjust. I mean, no, he just basically threw his bags down and comes to the ballpark. So now you're seeing here now in the, you know, fourth or, or the third or fourth day, he's really starting a little more of his personality starting to come out. When you you know when you first get here, you're kind of stressed out over the move and trying to learn new people and new surroundings. So it's really fun to see his like his personality come out over the last oh I don't know two days really in the last two days. I got a chance to go to Birmingham hoping that I would meet Aloy Jimenez, but he was hurt, so I didn't get that opportunity to speak with wow. him. Who is Aloy Jimenez like? You mentioned as far as his personality, a lot of people say he's got a superstar 
mentality. Do you see some of that personality as far as that mentality of being a future superstar in Ayla Jimenez? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, small sample size, but I mean, in in the in the very few interactions, I've basically I've seen him, uh, I you know, exchange, you know, highs at the uh, the batting cage in the uh, afternoon, and I'll grab him for a quick interview after. I mean, based on my interactions, I mean, it, it's nothing more than he's just trying to understand mm-hmm. Charlotte, try to understand. You know his new teammates. I mean, obviously some of these guys he worked with in the uh, in spring training. But um, I think you'll see more and more here, and I'll I'm, I'll really be looking closely. in when they come back, they're in Durham for the next three days. When they, when they come back next weekend, kind of understanding and kind of like finding his way in a new city, and and with that comes kind of shyness and kind of apprehension. So. Uh, I'm, I'm very, I'll be very interested to see him here this this, this next homestand when they come back uh, on Thursday through the, through the weekend, how his personality has grown or how how it's changed. Well, one of the other new guys too is Sebi Zavala. Uh, offensively, a bit of a rough start with five strikeouts, grounded into a couple double plays. But defensively, Zavala has thrown out two base stealers and he caught Carson Fulmer's eleven strikeout start. I know you got a chance to catch up with Fulmer after his start, Jonathan. What did Fulmer have to say about pitching to Zavala? Because it's been a while since those two worked together. Right, but like I said, he told me that um, Zebby was the first guy he ever threw to in professional ball. So they have a little bit of a history. So in that history, maybe, you know, even if it's been a couple of years, you know, there's still a, a template to work off of. You know, you're not you're not you're not seeing a guy for the first time that you've, that you've never seen before. That's happened. That happens a lot here with so much roster uh, movement. Um, is a great guy. I mean, I, I had a, a a very quick interview with him the other day. You know, I've been work. I've been, I've worked with the Red Sox in Boston and stuff. He's one of the first athletes to when you know when we when Tommy brings him in and we talk to him. He introduced himself as you know Zebby, and then he asks me what my name is. Mm-hmm. You know, usually a guy will just come in and, and, and all right, we're ready to go and fire off a couple of questions. He was interested in finding out who was interviewing him. So it was a little bit more in-depth than just the regular, all right, let's do this and I'm going to go home. You know what I mean? So I give him points for that. He gets, he gets points for me for that. But he seems like a good guy. I mean, obviously Carson and him worked well together. He had 11 strikeouts. So um, it seems like He'll be obviously Carson's pitcher for a catcher, sorry, for as long as Carson's here. I mean, they work well together, so why break it up? Well, that's a good point. And, you know, speaking with Carson, transition from Chicago to Charlotte again, and it looks like that he's had some shaky starts, but then he had this terrific start in his last appearance. How do you think Fulmer is handling this go around in Charlotte now? As obviously he struggled in Chicago, that's why they decided to send him back to Charlotte to either regain confidence or work on some mechanics. Do you think as far as his mentality and attitude to being demoted to Charlotte, that he's accepting this role well and he's doing everything that he needs to, to possibly come back to Chicago? Absolutely. And and everything you just said is exactly what he told me the first, after the first start here, he took responsibility for all the issues he had, all the problems he had in Charlotte. I mean, sorry, in Chicago, he knows exactly what he has to work on. Um, like I say, he takes responsibility for it, takes ownership for it. He knows working with Steve McCaddy, obviously, is a guy who's worked, he's worked with in the past. He understands that he made a lot of mistakes in, in Chicago, 
uh, and he's trying to correct those mistakes. And, you know, he's, he's, he's been good. He's been bad. So maybe this, this, this last start, hopefully, look, Carson's a great kid. Um, I, I told him, you know, don't, don't, don't lose the way he, his mannerisms and the way he conducts himself and the way he projects himself. Don't ever lose that. Cause I deal with some guys, you know, obviously when you get up to the big leagues and who left him serious ego and anger issues. <laughs> and it's just like, this guy is just so grounded. And it's like, every time you see him, it's a, he's got his hand out saying, Hey, how you doing? You know, it's not, it's not me coming to him. It's him coming to me and saying, how are you? You know, how are you doing? He's like a, almost like a, like a humanitarian. I almost want to say he's like a Pope. It's really <laughs> incredible. He's just a great, he's just a great guy. And you cheer for guys like that. Now, as far as the baseball, um, I, you know, all you can do is really cheer for a guy like this. I mean, hope, hopefully he corrects his issues over the next, oh, I don't know, maybe a month. Maybe he'll be here. We'll see. I mean, maybe he'll calm up. You know, they've had in, uh, injury issues this week with uh, Dylan Colby, and so maybe he'll go right back up. But, um, like, as I said, I mean, he, he's working on – he understands what his issues are. He's working on them. Uh, and hopefully w- what he did uh, in the last start will carry over here in the next two or three or four starts that will push him back up to Chicago. Ian Hamilton, he made one appearance over the weekend, but it was pretty impressive. One and one third innings. He struck out three, walked one, hitting one batter. And I think Hamilton is someone that the White Sox could call up in September for a cup of coffee, and maybe even compete for a bullpen job in 2019. So I have high hopes for someone like Ian Hamilton just because of his on-field skill set with that fastball-slider combo. We got a chance to see that a little bit from the stream in his one appearance with the Charlotte Knights. You got a chance to catch up with Ian after his one appearance. How did he feel about making his first relief appearance in AAA? Yeah, you know, it's different for pitchers than it is for hitters as far as making a transition because you're not necessarily going to be playing every single day. So he, he, and that was actually, he was actually three days in before he made an appearance. So, I mean, one of the things he said was, you know, obviously he's worked with some of these teammates before. He doesn't know Charlotte at all. He said he's been here a couple of times. Um, he's from Washington, I believe, or, or Oregon. Um, so as far as the transition for, in, in my opinion, the pitchers, it's a little easier because you're not expected to necessarily be there every day. But the kids got electric stuff. I mean, he was hitting mid-90s. Like you say, he struck out those three guys. He did give up a run. I believe he gave up an inherited run. Uh, he, he allowed an inherited run to score. Um, he's been, I mean, look, it, it's one, it, it's an inning and a half, uh, and an inning and a third. So it's not like, you know, we're not looking at the next, you know, Dennis Eckersley here. We don't know. I mean, the, the guy is like, you know, the guy, I mean, he looks fantastic. Um, I, I would, I would almost, I don't want to put him in the, the, the Zach Birdie category. I think Zach Birdie was incredible when he was here and I hope he comes back. But I mean, Ian, Ian looks like a guy where, that he could easily be a September call up. Uh, it just depends. I mean, like I said, he's transitioning, he's getting, you know, he's understanding the town, understanding his new teammates. So his, his, his workload is obviously a lot less, than maybe like a, a Jimenez or a Zavala. So maybe his uh, learning curve won't be so difficult. Well, we can't talk about Charlotte without mentioning Michael Kopech. In his last 10 starts, <laughs> uh, Kopech's only pitched 46 and a third innings. His ERA during those 10 starts is 6.41. He's got 59 strikeouts. That's good. But he has 39 walks. From Chicago, there are fans that are concerned, Jonathan, about 
what's going on with Kopech's command. He's a bit wild. Is there something wrong? And, you know, he has been inconsistent in the month of June. But in your interactions with Kopech, uh, is there anything that you could peg that could maybe suggest, you know, why he is struggling? Or has he mentioned the things that he's trying to work on to get himself back on track? Yeah, mostly, mostly it's, you know, when he, when he finds himself, and he's got a pattern here. If you watch in the last couple of, oh, I don't know, six or seven starts, there's a pattern. He'll start off, he'll struggle early, he'll struggle maybe the first two innings. Then he'll kind of ride himself and maybe, you know, he'll, he'll kind of cruise through maybe the third, fourth, and fifth, and then all of a sudden crash and burn in the sixth, and that's it. You know, that's basically been the M.O. for maybe the last – I don't know, six or seven stars. So I asked him personally, you know, when you, what, what is the biggest thing that you are dealing with on the mound when you start heading into these directions where you're losing your control? And, and he says it's more, of a, it's more of a mental issue for him. It's like he's got to be able to corral his, the mental side of the game just as much as the physical side of the game. I mean, the physical side of the game for him is easy. I mean, dude is like, what, 6'3", 2'10"? I mean, legit physical traits are off the charts. But everything with him appears to be in between the ears. And you can only really, you know, ask uh, the same question so many times. So, you know, how do you, how do you overcome your mental issues? How do you over? So he, what he does, he tries to talk himself through the mental issues during the, you know, during the inning. When he comes off the field, he'll talk to coach, uh, pitching coach Steve McCaddy. He'll talk to Mark Grudzlanek. Sometimes he'll even go into the little um, – they have a little room where the families meet and kind of like try to calm himself down to, you know, right, his, right the ship. It's just, it's just odd. I mean, the kid's got all kind of potential, but it just seems like he – it's almost like he can't harness it. I don't really understand what – why – what the issue is, uh, whether it's – you know, I mean, and and is it something that over the long haul can can be created? Because if you remember, he had about three good starts, uh, mm-hmm. maybe about a month ago. And I asked him, I'm like, and at the end of that third start, I said to him, I'm like, Michael, do you think you're ready? To, you know, do you think you're ready to go up to Chicago? And he says, I mean, yes, I think I'm ready to go up. I mean. Yeah, you know, what, what What more can I show? He says, uh, I've shown them my fastball. I've shown them my change. I've shown them my curve. What more do I have to do? I mean, what I have to do, I'm going to do. And that was the last start before he imploded and had that, you know, eight-walk, two-wild pitch game. And I, I just wonder what's going on in between the years uh, right at that moment when he's walking off the field that, you know, what is going on? in his head just because he was doing so well. And then all of a sudden the bottom just falls out. It's, it's just crazy. Maybe he can just write the ship and, you know, maybe he'll be great. He's pitching tomorrow in Durham. Maybe he'll be great. I'll be really interested to see what happens. Um, But, you know, he's the kind of guy where it's like, it it feels like it's, it's all mental and uh, anything that's going to improve is going to have to be within his own, mind someone that is being consistent since he's joined the charlotte knights uh, is jordan stevens he's made eight starts jonathan with the knights he's thrown 44 in a third innings where he has 41 strikeouts at 13 walks so good numbers and he has a 3.45 era after those eight starts 
And it, it seems like he's been adjusting the AAA life nicely, Jonathan. How, how does Jordan look on the mound, and how does he interact with you and the media off the mound? He's good. He's solid. I mean, it feels like he's a, right now a solid AAA pitcher. Um, I don't know what the obviously what the White Sox want to do with him. Um, could they bring him up this year? Um, but right now, it just it feels like you know to use a, a, a cliched uh, term like he's skating his lane. Yep. You know what I mean? It's kind of like he is where he's supposed to be, mm-hmm. and um, this is kind of just like he's kind of on cruise control. Uh, he's a very even killed kid. Um, I don't. I, he doesn't have moods or crazy mood swings. He's been really, really consistent. Uh, really consistent with his fastball. Um, I just feel like uh, he's the kind of guy. Well, I could see. I could see them throwing him up there for a start or two in the major leagues, just to get his ears wet. It almost feels like he's better off right now staying here, going through the season, even though he's what twenty five years old, I believe. Um, and kind of. Uh, mm-hmm seeing if you can make the the next move maybe next season. There's a couple of Donnie Roach who was also here is also pitching extremely well here. Uh in the I would I would Donnie Roach is a guy, I'm, I know this is kind of off topic. Donnie Roach is a guy that's almost like he is he's been pitching so well that he's almost making the the a case where the, the White Sox need to make a decision on him because he's been so good over the last I don't know what eight, seven or eight starts. Mm-hmm. But I mean, heading back to Jordan Stevens, I mean, I, I, I just feel like it, it almost feels like he's right where he needs to be right now. And maybe this right now is where he needs to be. If they throw him up for a start or two, I wouldn't be surprised, but it feels like to me that right now, this is where he needs to be. I'm glad you mentioned Don Roach because Dylan Covey with his injury, we don't know the full extent yeah. yet. If he has to miss a couple of weeks, the White Sox are going to need someone to fill in his spot in the starting rotation. I know Miguel Gonzalez made his rehab start today, but it was only three innings, and it seems like he may need a couple weeks to build up his shoulder because, again, he had that rotator cuff uh, issue that he's been dealing with. So, Jonathan, put your analyst hat on. If the White Sox need someone from Charlotte – to cover a couple of starts, who do you think is best prepared? Is that someone like Don Roach? Is it someone like Jordan Stevens, or maybe even Michael Kopech or Carson Fulmer? Uh, I, I don't think. I mean, I, in my opinion, it would be Fulmer first, especially if he's going to pitch. I believe on Tuesday. Uh, if he has another good start, then I, I definitely see him going back up. I don't know why they wouldn't at least kick the tires on Donnie Roach up there to see what you know. Just it, it, you know, they got a couple of double headers coming up. Throw him for one of the double headers and see what happens. I mean, I mean, they're what twenty five hundred. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, so why not just you know see what the guy? I don't. I just don't. Think, I don't see Copa going up. I, I just don't see. I don't. I think they want to see him work through this these issues he's had lately before they have the full confidence to throw him up. That's just me. Um, but I'm, why wouldn't you take? I mean, Donnie Roach is making them make a decision. He's been so good down mm-hmm. here. It almost feels like he's just he's I don't I mean just like wasting a wasting away down here. Just bring him up, see what happens. Well, you make a good case. The White Sox do have some double headers upcoming in Minneapolis that they can expand the roster to twenty six guys. Right. So yeah, there will be some opportunities right. for Donnie Roach to come up and make a spot start. Yeah. Miguel Gonzalez is not at all ready. He's just getting going. I mean he'll he'll be down he'll probably be here for a month. 
you know, I mean, I would I would imagine he'll make three or four starts before he's ready to come back up. I don't know. I don't know anything about the guy. Maybe he's like, you know, maybe he's a quick healer. He may be a quick healer, a healer. I don't know. Um, so it feels like to me he's just getting ready to come back. I mean, he pitched three today, which is one more than I thought. We thought he was going to go two, and they handed over to Roach. So he went three. He also had a very uh, – he, he was at 22 after three, I believe, 27 pitches after three. So that or thirty, thirty-two pitches after three. That's not that's not a huge workload. He had six pitches in the first inning. So you know you're not really you know you're not obviously not building up any kind of arm strength or you know any kind of. But I just see Miguel as being here at least three or four to five stars before they're ready to do anything transactionally with him. And before we let you go, we always ask when we talk about the minor leagues and we we have guests coming from the affiliates. Who is somebody that White Sox fans? should pay more attention to with the Charlotte Knights? Wow. Um, I would say a guy who I think, who I like to watch, who doesn't have a spot in Chicago, is Eddie Alvarez. And it's not because of the, you know, the silver medal. He just plays hard. Uh, and, you know, he had a home run today. He's a fast kid. Uh, you know, plays uh, he plays a good infield. I don't he'll I don't think he'll ever make the majors this year. He's kind of like a it seems like he's going to be he's too he's too far behind on the depth chart. But it's just fun to watch. It's fun to be around. He's a good kid, always happy, always laughing. Um, I would love to see him get a, at least a shot in September. But uh, Eddie Alvarez, Eddie Alvarez is a good guy to watch. Um, I would say also that. Um, I mean, this roster has been so up and down. There's so many guys going up and down. Um, I think uh, Casey Gillespie is a guy that you will mm-hmm. probably see here within by September call-ups. I think that's a, that's a definite. Uh, he's, he's got you know he's on and off got talent, but obviously there's something there that can be worked with. And we did have a Patreon question, and it's a very common question, Jonathan, that we keep at getting word from for fans regarding Charlotte. Ryan Cordell, has there been any updates on when Ryan Cordell could be returning to the Knights? None, and I will, just because you asked that, I will, when they come back on uh, Thursday, I will find out. Awesome. Yeah, because it's been a while. That, that, oh, that injury was a, that injury was an eight-week injury, and that was the, uh, what, the first, inside the first month of the season. So, um yeah, I will definitely find out. Well, awesome. Well, Jonathan, great stuff. And I highly recommend that you do follow Jonathan on Twitter as he posts plenty of video highlights during the games. And the post-game interviews are just awesome of the sound clips that he gets from the players. You can follow him on Twitter. He's at follow me for three. And Jonathan, again, great stuff and great insight. And thank you so much for joining the Sox Machine podcast. Josh, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Welcome to the Meyer League Report. The big news this week is, well, not great. Dane Dunning left his start on Saturday during the fourth inning with a sore elbow. A couple quotes from Rick Renteria. One, everybody considered it a very moderate strain. And two, nobody is, at this point, too concerned. I don't know if Renteria would be my go-to guy for laser-accurate prospect injury updates, considering Dunning won't be on the MLB radar for at least another year, but that's all we have so far. Dunning will be undergoing an MRI, so we may as well wait for that rather than drawing sweeping conclusions. In better news, Miguel Gonzalez started his rehab stint with Charlotte on Sunday, throwing three scoreless innings. He's expected to need a few starts to build up his arm strength. Before Dunning went down, promotions were the name of the game, so let's go through the affiliates and see how the recently boosted White Sox prospects are introducing themselves at new levels. 
In Charlotte, Elo Jimenez had his first big day at AAA on Sunday, hitting his first homer and also contributing the game-winning single. He's 4 for 13 with the homer, 3 walks and just 2 strikeouts over his first 4 games. Sebi Zavala has found AAA a little more challenging, going 1 for 12 with 5 strikeouts. He did guide Carson Fulmer to an 11 strikeout start in his first game up, which is Fulmer's career best total as a pro. Ian Hamilton has made just one appearance so far, recording three of his four outs by strikeout while walking one and plunking one. In Birmingham, Joel Booker went 0 for 4 against Montgomery on Sunday, and he's still hitting 444. He's 8 for 18 with two doubles, a homer, and a walk over his first four games with just two strikeouts. Luis Alexander Basabe is averaging a 1 for 4 game with a strikeout every time out, while Alex Call is lagging behind with just two hits over his first 15 at bats, but one of those hits is a homer. As for the pitching, Bernardo Flores' first Birmingham start was very Winston Salem like. A lot of innings, a few strikeouts, and a few runs. He took the loss against the Biscuits, but he threw seven innings of two run ball while striking out two. Dylan Cease has yet to make his double A debut. Down in Winston-Salem, Luis Roberts is holding his own, going 4 for 14 with two walks, five strikeouts, and a stolen base over his first four games. Luis Gonzalez didn't appear till Saturday, but he's got three hits over his first two games, including a double. Laz Rivero is the one I was most concerned about, because even though he might have been Canapolis' most productive hitter, it was accomplished with a very low walk rate. He's just 2 for 13 with a double so far over his first three games, and he's yet to draw his first walk. Pitching-wise, Tyler Johnson made his first appearance for the dash in a save situation, and the fifth-rounder from the 2017 draft nailed it down, going 1-2-3 at the strikeout. Lincoln Hensman also made his first appearance on Sunday, but oddly, it came in relief. He'd been starting all season for Canapolis, and he'd been a pretty good one. It didn't go so well. He gave up two runs, one earned on four hits over an inning's work. Canapolis wasn't on the receiving end of any key promotions during the minor league all-star break. The closest one is Luis Curbelo, who came up from extended spring training earlier in the month. He's hitting well enough, batting 265 with a 315 on on-base percentage and 386 slugging over his first 23 games at A-ball. On the other hand, he's already committed 11 errors in 21 games, most of them at third, although he's played a couple games at short. And since the short-season affiliates also started this past week, I'll throw out a couple names. In Great Falls, Lennon Sosa has been redistributing offense, going 9 for 23 with a homer and two doubles over his first seven games. Fifth-round pick Jonathan Stever struck out six over three scoreless innings in his pro debut, too. I wouldn't be surprised if Stever jumped to Canapolis fairly soon, given his experience in Indiana. For the AZL White Sox, Luis Mieses, who signed for $425,000 out of the Dominican Republic in 2016, has four consecutive multi-hit games, including a homer, triple, and two doubles. Fourth-round pick Lancy Delgado has the team's other homer, and he's hitting 294 or three walks over his first four games. That's not bad for a high school pick. That's it for the Meyer League Report. Now let's answer your questions in P.O. Socks. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Socks. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, the fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Socks, where you submitted your questions to us via Twitter by following us on Twitter at Socks Machine. Posting your questions on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash machine or helping support the show and the website by becoming a friend of the podcast, signing up at patreon.com slash machine and reconvening back on P.O. Socks and joining me to answer your questions is Jim Margulis. And Jim, the first question comes from Gukas Leogito. And Gukas is asking, now the promotions have occurred what are your most intrigued to watch over the second half at any affiliate level? Well, I think if you eliminate, say, like the 
top prospects like Eloy Jimenez, Luis Robert and such, and, and you know, the challenges they'll face at new levels. I think, uh, yeah, if you're going for under the radar types, I think Joel Booker right now has my attention, uh, based on the way he started at Birmingham. He's an interesting, um, he's a prospect, yeah, interesting prospect. He's a 23rd round pick. He was kind of a speedy center field type, but he's shown more power this year and shown some on base skills. He's 20, he's 24. So he's still like maybe on the older side for prospect age, but I think he's age appropriate for like a, an ordinary player. Uh, I think what the thing with him is that, um, you know, if you're a speed guy and if you rely a bit on your legs to kind of make up the core of your value, whether it's you know, offensively or defensively in center field, then you kind of have to make the most of it in your younger years because, you know, it doesn't age as well as say like plate discipline or power. So I think uh, for somebody like him, you know, he might be, a little, I guess, under a bit more pressure to perform immediately. Like maybe say like not in the first couple of weeks as it gets adjusted, but I think, you know, maybe by the end of the first month, you'd like to see him playing well, just so he's able to stay on a track to where he can't, you know, theoretically make the majors, um, you know, with, uh, with his best legs under him. So, you know, he's one guy I think who's, uh, compelling under the radar viewing. Um, Sebi Zavala is another one just because, uh, you know, he did have his flaws at, uh, Birmingham, a pretty high strikeout rate. So I think, uh, um, Charlotte and AAA should be, you know, might expose that a bit, but, you know, it was nice seeing him catch, uh, Carson Fulmer's 11 strikeout game. It's a nice way to start for, uh, you know, his pitcher handling reputation. So that's cool. Um, then I think in a ball, I think, uh, kind of the guys in Kannapolis who were overqualified for the level, uh, Luis Gonzalez, Laz Rivera, Lincoln Hensman, Blake Battenfield. Those are the guys I think I'm, I'm intrigued by how they perform immediately just because it seemed like they were just in Kannapolis to, you know, one, you know, in, in Gonzalez's case, avoid the outfielder logjam, And then two, you know, as like Rivera and Hensman Battenfield, they were there trying to shore up a first half championship for Kannapolis that didn't happen, but it seemed like they could have been promoted like a month ago. And so I would hope that they would perform, you know, if not immediately, pretty close to that. So uh, they have my attention right away. And then, you know, obviously, you know, Jimenez and Robert and Dylan Cease and, and those guys too. I mentioned this during the interview with Jonathan Lee, but Ian Hamilton is someone I'm keeping yes. an eye on because I think he might pitch well enough, Jim, to merit a cup of coffee in September. With the White Sox, yeah, kind of like yeah, kind of like Aaron, yeah, Bowman. somebody, somebody in their plans, exactly, and compete for a 2019 bullpen spot with the White Sox. He's only an inning and a third, but that fastball and slider combo can definitely play in AAA, and I think it gives him a fighting shot in the major leagues, and we may see it in September. So that's that's my pick so far. I mean, with the second half starting. Blake Rutherford and Mike Adelfo and Winston-Salem, man, they are bringing the boom down there. And uh, Birmingham's off to a good start. So hopefully it'll be a great second half for all of the White Sox minor league affiliates. And we continue to see progress and some development maybe of the second tier and third tier prospects for the White Sox in their farm system. Gukas, great question. Thank you so much. The next question, it comes from AJ. And AJ's asking, Jim, why does anyone let Mikata hit right-handed anymore? Um, just because he probably hasn't faced left-handed pitching from the left side since maybe 15 years old, <laughs> when it kind of, you know, given that he's not, uh, he didn't come up through the American amateur system. We don't quite know exactly when he started switching. You know, it's probably a question for him, uh, for, for a beat writer, but he's been switching for such a long time, seeing 
left-handed pitching from the same side, seeing breaking balls go away from you, that's got to be quite foreign to him. And, and, and so, like, you know, whether he hit lefties as a lefty or whether he hits lefties as a righty, you're probably going to get to the same spot either way, um, you know, below average production. I think batting as a righty and getting more reps against upper-level pitching as a righty, um, that's probably the safer way for him to be an everyday player. I think, you know, if you say confine him to only swinging his lefty and he never quite hits lefties, then you run the risk of you know, requiring him to have a caddy at second base and maybe he's like a 130 game a year player versus 150 a game a year player. And that seems like not the best um, outcome for him as somebody who is replacing Chris Sale on the roster in terms of value. So um, when it comes to switch hitters and such, I think you have to allow a generous learning curve. And really, when yeah, I wouldn't rule it out that he might have to give up switch hitting, but uh, you know we've seen some guys do it. Um, you know, Shane Victorino did it. Um, Eugenio Suarez did it. Um, I think Pablo Sandoval did it. Uh, Aaron Hicks. Uh, there have been a number of guys who have, and some guys like Dexter Fowler consider it didn't do it. Um, uh, Billy Hamilton has avoided it. Other guys have kind of publicly flirted with it, then figured it out. Um, but you know that's it's probably a battle that he'll be contending with for a while and I imagine maybe after the 2019 season might be when say if he shows no notable improvement and he's still you know um say a 600 OPS against uh left-handed pitching he's not even getting on base enough to be a top of the order guy like I think if he hit for you know didn't hit for a lot of power but still got on base like at a 350 clip against uh, lefties and that would be useful in the White Sox lineup being getting on base for thumpers uh, you know, the right-handed power like a Bray or Eloy Jimenez, you know, in due time or whatever. But I think uh, if he's not getting on base against lefties, you know, at even like say a 300 clip and, you know, he's somebody who profiles better as an eight or nine hitter against lefties, then, you know, might be something to consider. But I think uh, for the time being, you know, part of the use of the rebuild is letting him learn or seeing if he can learn seeing, you know, maxing out his talents. And uh, I wouldn't give up on it anytime soon. He just needs to find the Jose Ramirez playbook. Yeah. And develop like Ramirez has. It seems like the swing is smoothed out a little. Right-handed? It's uh, yeah. It might be just he might have just had one good game or you know a couple of good games where he was, you know, not trying to pull the ball and not trying to kind of boost his slugging. I think right now I think when you look at his right-hand swing, I think uh, singles are going to be the way to go for him. Uh, you kind of being more of somebody who pokes the ball to right field, you know, goes away with pitches rather than trying to uh, pull everything, which I think has been kind of his, uh, uh, you know, aside from, you know, swinging and missing, I think that, you know, the other part of his contact thing is he's not quite as strong. You know, the swing isn't quite as quick and fluid from the right side. So I think in order to get the bat to ball and be able to produce some, I think probably singles, opposite field singles would be the way to go. And again, I think he just needs to be more aggressive, especially if pitchers are going to throw him a first pitch fastball. Mm-hmm. That I think I want Mikata to attack that far more often and more aggressive when he's batting right-handed than when he's batting left-handed. I think it's just a a confidence thing. Our next question comes from Salt Grinder on Twitter. And Salt Grinder is asking Jim thoughts on who on the roster should be offered a contract extension. Thoughts on who would actually accept one. And he does add in some players that he had in mind that could qualify for this statement. He's mostly thinking about Carlos Rodon, Jose Abreu, 
and Avasil Garcia. I really don't see any natural extension candidates. I think we've talked about Abreu the most just because of his value to the franchise, the fact that um, you know he's not really blocking anybody, uh, and his hitting skills could age well. Um, but you know, given how tough it's been for 30-something first basemen in the open market, it seems like the White Sox can go year-to-year, allow him to hit free agency, or at least come close to it, You know, see what uh, he wants to do. Uh, see what his price tag is and go from there. Um, you know, the other guys like Rodon is a Boris client. They usually don't sign extensions unless something might be wrong. So, um, you know, given that he's already got a big bonus um, in his past, I think that, you know, he's more somebody who will test free agency when it happens, especially like say if he gets healthy as he approaches it and, you know, logs one or two good years entering that. So he doesn't strike me as a guy who will sell out while he's hurt uh, or at least not sell out, but, you know, I guess, Accept a number while he's still, you know, pitch, pitching partial seasons. Avi, I think, you know, for you know, this injury makes it kind of a non-starter for both sides, um, just because I think he's not going to want to sign an extension while he's coming off a half season if he thinks he can replicate the all-star season in 2019. So none of those guys, when you look at the pitching, Lopez, Giolito, none of them have really established any kind of um, uh, bankable type approaches, Arsenal stuff yet. So I think... Uh, you know, none of them are crying out for an extension. You know, Moncada has already signed for, you know, he got his $31 million contract. So he doesn't need the kind of early payday, um, just, you know, the way other guys do who are trying to get set for life. Um, really, when it comes down to it, um, the guy who might be an early extension candidate might be Zach Birdie. You know, he might be the one who, who you know, say, if he's able to get healthy, and get pitching in the White Sox in short order, whether it's, you know, I, I don't think it'll be the end of this year, but say early 2019. You know, if he steps in and looks like a high leverage reliever, he might be somebody who is amenable to an extension just because it is his hometown team. Um, he has one Tommy John surgery already. Um, and um, on the White Sox side, if he, they want him to save games, saves really inflate arbitration numbers. So I could see that being worked out, but as we saw with the, you know, with the offseason and with um, guys entering arbitration years, we saw Yolmer Sanchez take them, t- uh, take the White Sox to arbitration. We saw Avi do the same. And, you know, as the CBA tension kind of, uh, you know, is, is in this weird, awkward state and, you know, as the market has been frozen for free agents, I think players might be not inclined to sign away free agent years or, or too many of them. So I imagine, you know, extensions might be hard to come by or at least harder to come by for as cheap as the White Sox used to get them. I'm thinking maybe if Lucas Giolito and Ronaldo Lopez, maybe after next year, the White Sox see this as an opportunity. Yeah. I mean, like that would be the timetable, like they're after their first full season or second full season. Right. Spin it in the way that let's try to save some money for a period of time that we hope to be spending money to be building a winning ball club. That's the only thing that I can think of because it does raise a good point of who could be as far as contract extensions. And I, I agree with you, Jim. I don't see it with Carlos Rodon, Jose Breu, and obviously Garcia. But it's a great question, Salt Grider. Thank you very much for it. And that will do it for this week's P.O. Sox. Thank you guys so much for submitting questions this week. If you have a question or topic that you would like us to tackle on the Sox Machine podcast, again, you could follow us on Twitter. We're at Sox Machine. Like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Sox Machine. And again, you could help support the show 
and the website by becoming a friend of the podcast by going to patreon.com slash socks machine and showing some support uh, by signing up to become a friend of the podcast. We get additional content every single week, whether it's from the show or extra writing. Uh, If you're interested in getting more content from us every single week, again, go to patreon.com slash socks machine to sign up today. And that will do it for this edition of the socks machine podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you just discovered the show, you can subscribe in a variety of ways. One is through iTunes by going to the iTunes store, searching Socks Machine. You could also listen to us in Spotify. Just go to Spotify, search Socks Machine. You could follow us there to get notifications of all the new episodes. You could also listen to us at Google Play Music Store for the Android smartphone users, audioboom.com slash Socks Machine as well. The Sox Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Check out our amazing offers on Xfinity Internet. You'll get fast speed and Wi-Fi coverage you can count on. Plus, get advanced security free with the XFi Gateway, so you can keep the connected devices in your home protected from network threats. Just log in and activate through the Xfinity app. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.